Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we interview philosophers about their new books in a wide variety of areas, including ethics, metaphysics, epistemology, social and political philosophy, philosophy of mind, philosophy of science, and many more. Today's interview is with Muhammad Ali Khalidi, Associate Professor of Philosophy and Director of the Cognitive Science Program at York University. We're talking about his new book, Natural Categories and Humankinds, which is just out from Cambridge University Press. The division between natural kinds, the kinds that cut nature at its joints, and those that simply reflect human interests and values, has a long history. The natural kinds are often thought to have certain essential characteristics that are fixed by nature, such as a particular atomic number, while other kinds, of which a commonly cited example is race, are contentious precisely because they appear to group things, in this case people, by features that reflect social mores and not real essences. That natural versus socially constructed difference, of course, depends on what an essence is, as well as whether having an essence is the mark of a natural kind. In his new book, Khalidi argues for what he calls an epistemic view of natural kinds, in which they are the kinds that correspond to our best scientific categories and satisfy various epistemic virtues. On his view, natural kinds do not have essences, often have fuzzy boundaries, can satisfy the relevant epistemic virtues to differing degrees, and can be mind-dependent in a way that does not impugn their objectivity. The result is a challenging view of natural kinds that avoids problems associated with essentialist views, but also widens the scope of what may be a natural kind to include, potentially, many of those often considered to be socially constructed. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Professor Khalidi. Hi. uh, Thanks very much for, for having me on. Uh, your podcast. Yeah, this is, I'm very excited to hear about your new book, Natural Categories and Humankinds. I wanted to start with um, the basic background question of, you know, how you came to write this book about about natural kinds, um, why you got interested in this topic, and, and perhaps, you know, its its place, its role in your, your larger philosophical project and philosophical interests. Yeah, well, I guess like many philosophers, I came to philosophy from science. I started out by studying physics at university, but I think I always had certain philosophical interests even then. And um, in fact, even before going to university, I'd been exposed to a little bit of philosophy and um, I was interested in logic. And so I've always been interested in in foundational questions uh, in science, uh, categorization, classification systems, um, what makes them valid, what makes them legitimate. And um, 
eventually when I went to graduate school and, and studied philosophy, I, um, I also focused on these foundational questions in science. I, I wrote my dissertation on incommensurability and worked a little bit on reductionism. And I've been thinking about uh, categories and classification off and on really since then. And, and um, I've written a few papers over the years about what philosophers call natural kinds, which is roughly uh, what they mean by that, I think, is what are the what are the categories that are that are valid or that truly correspond to divisions in nature? So the natural kinds are supposed to be those divisions in nature that, that really exist. And I was always interested in getting to the bottom of that debate and in, in trying to resolve this question. And so eventually I thought that um, I would try to uh, tackle it uh, in, in book length form, <laughs> not, not just in a series of articles. So that's how I came to write the book. So um, you clearly have been thinking, I mean, it, it comes through very clearly that, you, that you've been thinking about these things from a, a variety of, of angles so for a long time. Um, and you, you begin the book by setting the stage with, you know, sort of the basic metaphysical questions, right? What What is a kind, right? How is it related to properties? Um, so maybe just to set our stage as well, you could say, you know, what what is a kind on your view and and what motivates us to, to posit kinds to begin with? Yeah, I, I guess one could distinguish two questions. I don't know if um, people have very clearly always distinguished those two questions. But there's what you might call the what question and the which question. So the what question is, what are kinds, metaphysically speaking? Are they, for instance, just collections of particulars? Are they sets, as, say, traditionally nominalists might have it? Or are they more like universals, as metaphysical realists would have it? And if they are universals, are they, you know, completely abstract entities? Are they um, transcendent universals like platonic forms or are they imminent? Uh, David Armstrong thinks of universals as being present in each of their instances. So there are those big questions, the, the, the what question, what is a kind metaphysically speaking? What does it correspond to? And frankly, that's, I find a very perplexing question that I don't have a crisp answer to. What I do in the book is to show some of the pros and cons of these various conceptions. And, and I think I, I sort of leave it as an, as an open question. And um, I move on to, to consider this other question, which is uh, what I uh, refer to as the which question, which is which kinds are there? So you could distinguish the, the metaphysical question about the status of kinds from perhaps an ontological question about which and should we admit into our ontology, whether whether they're abstract uh, universals or, or whether they're just sets of particulars, mm -hmm. which of them are somehow uh, correspond to, to things in reality, which, which of these uh, categories that we posit corresponds to uh, divisions in nature. And so... Um, so I, I focus most of the book on, on the which question, in other words, which of our categories are natural kinds. So you, um, in the beginning, a couple, few chapters, you go through, you know, various alternatives before, you know, getting to and then defending and elaborating 
on on your own epistemic view. Um, uh, I don't know if we need to go through all of the other alternatives, but maybe you can focus on one of them, perhaps uh, in a sense some essentialist view, um, uh, and what uh, what you find to be you know wrong or mistaken about about those alternatives, uh, and and how that motivates your own alternative. Yeah, I think essentialism has become uh, the dominant view among philosophers uh, as to what distinguishes. Uh, the, the natural kinds from other, you know, artificial uh, kinds or gerrymandered kinds or what, what distinguishes categories that, that correspond to natural kinds from ones that don't. And the essentialists, I guess the way they go about it is by, by identifying certain criteria that they consider to be uh, features uh, that you would need to find in uh, kinds. And um, the, they don't always agree on which exact criteria uh, kind satisfy, but I think there's a list of four or five things that um, most essentialists uh, have identified as, as being features of natural kinds. And there are things like uh, natural kinds need to be associated with a set of properties uh, as, as necessary and sufficient conditions. And so uh, each natural kind is associated with a set of properties that each of which is uh, necessary uh, for for belonging to that kind, and they're jointly sufficient. Uh, another feature is that these properties need to be intrinsic; uh, they need to be modally necessary. Uh, you know, they must hold across possible worlds, if you like. Um, some essentialists also add that they have to be microstructural, and so on. But now this whole strategy, I think there's a couple things wrong with this strategy. I mean, first of all, I think there's a real question as to where these desiderata or where these desirable features are, are coming from. I mean, on what basis are we positing uh, that natural kinds need to have these features? And I don't think that's been adequately justified by, by essentialists. Um, you know, could it be just a result of certain cognitive biases that we have or or a desire to, to see a kind of uh, neatness in the universe that we posit that they need to be associated uh, with a set of properties by way of necessary and sufficient conditions? I, I don't think those kinds of um, features have been, uh, you know, demonstrated to, to have uh, be, um, to have been justified as, as, uh, as, as, desiderata that we that we posit um the other the other problem with this general strategy it seems to me apart from um the the whole justification of where these features come from is that on closer inspection i argue that most of the paradigmatic natural kinds actually fail to satisfy one or the other of, the, of these features and so e even the the natural kinds that essentialists um, almost uh, unanimously are committed to as, as being true natural kinds don't really have the features that they're posited to have, I think, on closer inspection. So I think that whole approach uh, has, has misled us. I, I think that uh, we need to take a, a different uh, attitude to, towards identifying natural kinds. So your view, I mean, if you, um, well, let's, you 
you um, propose a, you know, an alternative set of desiderata um, derived from science, basically a, a group of, of scientific virtues. Um, so maybe you could say a bit about what your alternative consists of um, and, and then how it relates to the, the usual desiderata of, you know, f- you know, fixed boundaries or um, having certain modal status or, or being microphysical. Right. Well, um, I, I think rather than say that I've, I've sort of uh, set out from a different set of desiderata, I guess what I, um, my approach is to say, well, h- how should we go about determining which divisions actually exist in nature? Well, we have no alternative to our best epistemic practices, right? We have ways of investigating the world. We have ways of discerning what sorts of um, groupings there exist in the world. And uh, that those ways of investigation are roughly coextensive with the enterprise that we call science. And so science tries to group things into categories in order to explain and predict and and understand the uh, features of the world, the causal structure of the world. And it seems to me we have no alternative but to rely on our best epistemic practices for uh, coming up with valid categories or uh, good classification schemes. And those valid categories or good classification schemes are none other than uh, the categories that correspond to natural kinds. So um, there's a sense in which, yeah, I'm going from epistemology to metaphysics, but I don't think there's really any alternatives to that unless we sort of posit that we've got some kind of a priori means of of determining what uh, the features of the universe are. And I'm not prepared to accept an assumption like that. So um, when you, I mean, let me let me just focus on one or two of the the epistemic virtues, like uh, mm-hmm. projectability right. uh, of a, of a particular category or, or predicate, um, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and then the the idea also that that natural kinds that there's a, a sense in which they're revisable. Right, mm-hmm. both both of these things sort of you know are very much against the grain of the of the you might say the natural kind tradition if you want to put it that way. Um, so uh, one of the things that you say is that um, projectability will will come in degrees, right? And and you may be completely correct that you know nature uh, you know doesn't obey these strict boundaries that that you know other philosophers have associated with natural kinds. Um, and so then the, the question will sort of arise, well, um, if kinds are, if, if you have a kind that is not highly projectable uh, or satisfies the other epistemic criteria to, to a degree, mm-hmm. um, uh, then, or, or just has vague boundaries or something like that, um, then are, are we really talking about natural kinds or, or sort of are, are different kinds kind of natural kinds or kind of joint-like or something like that? I mean, when you, once you introduce the idea of a degree, right, right. then what happens to the concept of it being natural, you know, corresponding to a joint? Yeah. Well, I think there have been some philosophers who are impatient with the essentialist approach and, and think that um, 
it doesn't apply to lots of categories. And then they say, well, but then there are these other things which we might call epistemic kinds or investigative kinds. And as though that was kind of second best. But it seems to me there are very few categories, if any, in nature that satisfy the desiderata that essentialists have come up with. And it's not as though um, there are these sort of second best categories uh, uh, and and that they fail to measure up uh, to uh, some of the uh, essentialist criteria. I mean, let, let me... Let me maybe uh, give a concrete example to make this a little bit more uh, vivid. Sure, sure. So let's take the categories that almost everyone agrees are um, uh, correspond to natural kinds and um, are very crisp, nice, sharp, uh, bounded mm-hmm. uh, kinds, uh, uh, say the, the elements of the periodic table. Right. Um, and, and let's take uh, an element like uh, lithium, atomic number three. Now, this is, uh, seems like the paradigm case of a natural kind. So lithium has atomic number three, and from this flow all these other properties, such as that lithium uh, is a metal, and that it has a certain kind of electrical conductivity and a density and reactivity with water, let's say. It's flammable. Uh, and then it, it uh, has all sorts of other properties when ionized, for instance, it has a certain uh, kind of um, psychopharmacological properties. It has an effect uh, on the brain and stabilizing mood disorders and all that. But now, um, it seems as though the necessary and sufficient um, criterion for being an atom of lithium is to have atomic number three. But it turns out that some isotopes of lithium are more stable than others, and so uh, the isotopes with uh, mass numbers six and seven are more stable, and they're the ones that actually have most of these properties. And as you get to less stable isotopes, then they have less and less of these properties because they're not a- around long enough. They they decay uh, by radioactive decay too quickly to have many of these properties. And so we're we're finding that the um, the boundaries that we want to draw around uh, this particular chemical element are themselves kind of fuzzy, and it, they shade off a little bit. So we want to consider lithium-8 to be a member of this kind um, just as much as lithium-6 or lithium-7, which are the stable isotopes. Well, for some purposes, yes, and for some purposes, no. So it turns out that nature actually has fuzzier boundaries than I think many philosophers have imagined or posited. And so I think that when we find that the universe doesn't correspond to our preconceptions in, in this way, we, we're, uh, it behoves us to change some of these preconceptions and to say, well, yes, it turns out that there are joints in nature, but perhaps they're a little fuzzier, they're a little less crisp than we might have uh, wanted to uh, imagine, uh, and so uh, it 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 seems to me that this is the case across the board. So it's not just that, well, some of the categories in the special sciences or in the biological or social sciences are fuzzy or uh, a little bit um, are not sharp uh, th- throughout. It, it turns out that uh, this actually pertains to some of the most basic kinds uh, in nature. 
that everyone agrees are natural kinds. So, um, what? Uh, so, there's. I suppose the 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 question that that sort of keep kept coming to me um, as I as I read the book was. Um, you, what you described before, you're starting with sort of epistemology, this the science, and you're making a uh, an inference, you might say, about the metaphysics uh, or to the metaphysics. And um, I kept thinking about the the sort of background realist commitment um, that that seemed to to be behind um, the whole the the book in general. Um, so what is it what is it that uh if you know if even our paradigmatic kinds don't really correspond to what we preconceptually think of as you know these sharp joints um but you know everything's kind of kind of fuzzy to different degrees um what is it that naturalness buys us hmm. Well, I mean, I think that one thing that one reason that philosophers are uh, sh- should be concerned with this topic is that it's a concern for uh, many working scientists and for uh, us as citizens generally. I mean, these questions come up. Uh, in science all the time. Which categories are valid? On what basis should we posit uh, categories? Um, Scientists in in different fields talk about things like construct validity or how should we operationalize this category? Uh, And then these questions also come up uh, in in public discourse. You know, uh, are are some of these social categories valid or not? Should we be classifying people into this system of uh, taxonomic categories or this other system, um, which are just uh, prejudices of ours and which correspond to real divisions in the world? And so we as philosophers, I think, who try to think about these things in a more abstract way and try to uh, have a kind of big picture account take a step back from the details, the messy details of each of these sciences in each of these domains, I think it's um, incumbent on us to try and uh, draw some general lessons or to come up with uh, some general recommendations as to the basis upon which uh, we should make these kinds of uh, determinations. And I guess... I think of myself as being engaged in a small way in in this whole effort. So that's, I think, what it buys us. I think that um, we have a genuine need to distinguish categories which um, are really, you know, correspond to divisions in the natural and social world, and and categories which are just a result of perhaps certain biases that we might have had or. Uh, uh, are posited as a result of certain misleading ideas about what exists in the world and so on. So, um, uh, let me ask about the, the revisability issue, mm-hmm. which I, which I right. raised a bit right. before. Yeah. Um, uh, 
you know, that again, that's, you know, sort of feeds into the same sort of uh, issue about what, what we get from calling something natural if, if indeed such natural categories are revisable as, you know, they, on your account, they, they ought to be. Um, so can you, can you say a word about, about how the issue of the revisability of natural kinds? Yeah, let, let me make a, a distinction. Uh, at one point in the book, I talk about the revisability of our categories. And then mm-hmm. later on, I also talk about the, the mutability of kinds themselves. Okay. So, um, yeah, we often will revise our cat early on in the book uh, as a as an attempt to show that um, our epistemic tra- practices really do try to uh, track divisions of na- in nature. Um, I talk about revisability as one indication. I mean, it's it's not a surefire demonstration, but it's one indication that we're what we're trying to do is to refine, adapt. Uh, and otherwise change the boundaries of our categories so as to better conform to the causal structure of the world. And we see this happening all the time in science. As we uh, revise certain categories, we uh, shape them and mold them in in a certain way in order to better capture uh, the causal structure of the world. And so I see that as, as being a big part of the uh, scientific enterprise and as an indication that the what science is trying to do is is to try to capture the, the causal structure of the world. But then there's another um, issue which crops up with uh, some categories in, in various domains, um, which is that the kinds themselves sometimes are mutable. Um, let, let's call it the mutability of, of, of kinds as opposed to the revisability of our categories. And, um, you know, this is you know, perhaps most prominently illustrated by, say, the case of biological species, which which are which do evolve and, and change over time and so on. And it also uh, happens in the um, in the social world quite a bit. And uh, Ian Hacking, for instance, has talked about uh, the looping effect of of uh, human kinds or the um, interactivity. And what he means by that is the way in which they change the the categories themselves. Their, uh, sorry, the the kinds themselves, their properties change in response to uh, sometimes human attitudes and, and and so on. And I think that that is an issue that that does crop up more prominently in the biological uh, and social realms. I mean, it, it, I should emphasize that it's not just the social realm; it's the biological realm. But I suspect that it, it's not. Uh, impossible for it to happen in the physical or chemical realms. Um, You know, some physicists now speculate that perhaps the properties of elementary particles have not stayed uniform throughout the history of the universe and might have been quite different. The masses of elementary particles might have been different early on in the history of the universe. Now, of course, you might say, ah, but that's, you know, cosmic time, that's cosmological time, that's not, you know, in, in the lifetime of human beings. But, you know, I'm, th- there are differences of degree, but I'm not sure that that should um, matter to us in principle. I think as philosophers, what we're interested in are, are these broad features and, and determining whether these features pertain 
you know, purely to the social realm or to the biological or to other realms. And so I think there's good reason to think that this might be a feature of kinds across the board, this kind of mutability. Now, if kinds are mutable in this way, does that mean that they're not natural or they're not real? And I'm not sure that we should say that. I mean, if, if nature itself turns out to be mutable, if, if nature itself turns out to change, well, uh, that's just a feature of the universe that we've discovered. Um, our, uh, our, pre, our disposition to think of nature as being fixed or immutable mm. has just turned out to be uh, mis- misleading, misguided. Okay, that's a good uh, good distinctions there. Um, l- let me go back. You mentioned two two things that I want to get back to. Uh, one, the causal structure um, issue, and then the what you called the looping effect, which you mm-hmm. know, there's a broader questions there. But um, uh, you distinguish your view from the one associated with Richard Boyd of, of um, uh, homeostatic property clusters. Right, that that sort of causal structure um, uh, as the basis of a natural kind, and you align yourself with with Carl Craver's uh, simple causal theory. Um, so maybe you can say a word about this causal structure that we're supposed to be capturing uh, with our natural with our categories, um, uh, and how you sort of distinguish your view from from Boyd's view, and then you know, align it with, with Craver's view? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Richard Boyd really moved the debate forward a great deal um, and, and moved us, I think, away from uh, essentialism, although some people have tried to interpret uh, his theory in, in essentialist terms. But Boyd said that a lot of kinds have this uh, structure whereby there's some kind of mechanism that uh, keeps a cluster of properties in homeostasis. So the reason that we have kinds in nature, the reason that we have uh, sets of properties that uh, always reoccur and uh, that cluster together in this way is because there are sometimes mechanisms in nature whereby uh, these clusters of properties, loose clusters perhaps, not strict clusters sometimes, are kept together in a state of equilibrium or homeostasis. And I think when he proposed this, I don't think he was suggesting that this applied to all uh, kinds or that all kinds had uh, these features. Uh, And I think he was mainly thinking of biological kinds as having these features. And I think he's right that many biological kinds do have this kind of structure where you've got some kind of mechanism that generates these properties and keeps them more or less uh, in equilibrium. But it seems to me that uh, there are lots of kinds uh, that don't have quite that structure. For, for a start, there's not always a mechanism, really, that's, that's keeping the properties together. Sometimes one or a, 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 a few properties are instantiated together or co-instantiated, and then they lead reliably uh, to a set of other properties. Uh, and um, this doesn't really happen as a result of a mechanism or anything like that. Uh, so 
it, it, I don't think it's a perfectly general account. And in a way, I think that um, what I'm trying to do is relax these conditions a little bit and say that um, when we uh, when we don't require there to be a mechanism or don't always say that uh, there's a kind of a tendency towards equilibrium, uh, then what we end up with is what Carl Craver, as you say, calls a simple causal theory. And I, I don't know, I mean, I think, I, I don't think Craver talks about this in um, very, uh, in more than just one or two articles. Um, and I'm not sure that he's tried to um, develop this in any detail. Uh, but uh, I think it's, um, it, several other philosophers have, have been thinking along these lines and have, say, have been saying, well, Boyd's account is great and it works very well in, in um, say, the biological domain. Although maybe I should add parenthetically here that some people have also criticized uh, Boyd's account as not applying very well to the biological domain either. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but some people have said, well, it applies nicely to the biological domain, but, you know, maybe we could relax uh, some of these conditions a little bit. And I think that when we do, what we end up with is an attempt to track these general causal structures. And um, what I find when I look at uh, a number of case studies is that there are these causal pro uh, processes uh, that kinds feature in it. And, um, you know, the, there's a slogan that I use, and I'm not sure how useful it is, but I talk about nodes in causal networks. So there are these causal networks, uh, and the kinds represent certain central nodes in these causal networks, where certain properties come together on a regular basis, and then they generate certain other properties uh, in these recurring uh, patterns or, or networks. So um, much of the uh, much of the debate about natural kinds. Um, well, I mean, there's a there's a lot of different um, debates there. I mean, obviously within the biological realm, some people want to say those kinds, you know, are natural. Some like Brian Ellis will say, nope, the biological kinds are not. Um, uh, but a lot of the the um, a lot of the discussion of natural kinds um, that gets more um, more uh, harder to resolve, I should maybe um, are more involved with the special sciences, which would include biology, but of course, obviously, the, the social sciences and psychology and the human sciences. Um, and there you have, you know, this idea that here we've got uh, sciences, if they count as sciences even, uh, where the kinds are, are socially constructed or they're just dependent on us, or in some sense they have some feature uh, that prevents them from being natural kinds, right? So um, it's not just the fuzziness, maybe of different isotopes of lithium, uh, but it's just that these, you know, very high order uh, human sorts of social categories are just completely out of the ballpark. And on your view, that's that's just not true. Um, and so you discuss a pit, you know, various of these features. Um, that are supposed to attach to uh, categories in the social sciences or the human sciences. Um, 
which are supposed to rule them out as, you know, can't possibly be natural kinds. Um, and some of these are like they're con they're conventional in some way or, or institutional, um, or they're just copied kinds, um, uh, or they're merely disjunctive, uh, and so forth. Um, so maybe, uh, it would be, uh, important to, uh, to talk about, you know, how you address each of these, you know, supposedly, you know, very problematic uh, features of categories in social human sciences that, on your view, you know, don't create a problem for considering those categories as corresponding to natural kinds. Yeah. Um, I mean, one sort of general point that I want to emphasize is what I try to do is to look at a range of kinds from the most basic physical chemical up into the psychiatric. And in, in, in doing so, what I found is that there are no real sharp divides in the sense that it's not that we find these um, the, the characteristics of the kinds at the physical or chemical level that, that we don't find at all. Uh, in in these uh, at these other levels or in these other domains, uh, and I find that there's a kind of continuity and, and the assumptions that we've made that there are somehow essence kinds in, in say the physical or chemical domain, but then uh, not in the um, biological or or social domains. I think um, that's not the case. And uh, one uh, one property and, and kind that I uh, use kind of throughout the book to illustrate some of these points is, is the property of viscosity and um, the kind Newtonian fluid, which occurs in fluid dynamics. Uh, and, and part of the reason that I uh, do that is, is that it's a nice example of a kind from the physical sciences that is functional and is, uh, it only really uh, pertains to the macro level uh, and uh, has some of these features that we tend to associate with um, with the um, you know non physical uh, kinds and and uh, properties, but having said that, um, it is true that some features uh, tend to pertain more or tend to be more often found in say the biological and social realms um, than than in these other realms. Uh, so maybe etiological kinds, kinds identified on the basis of their causal history as opposed to their causal powers, uh, tend to be more prominent in the biological and, and, and social domains. Although, you know, I do mention instances of this occurring in sciences such as astronomy or geology uh, and so on. So, for instance, we identify types of rocks as uh, igneous or metamorphic or sedimentary based on their causal history, mm -hmm. um, not so much their, their actual um, synchronic causal properties. Um, and I, I do think, I mean, I, there, there's, so there are a couple of features which I do think are, pose a problem uh, for considering um, certain categories to correspond to natural kinds. I think etiology really does represent a bit of an exception because what we're doing there is we're individuating things or we're um, grouping them together 
as I said, on the basis of their causal history as opposed to their causal powers. And even though that's still an attempt to discern the causal structure of the world, it's really looking at sort of the end point of a causal process rather than um, the beginning point. And so those kinds are, are special in a certain way, whether they're biological or social or whether they pertain to astronomy or geology or something like that. But now, um, as to other features, one thing that you mentioned where I would, uh, I, I do think that, um, it, it, that the feature really does make it uh, that a kind is, is not, um, is not, properly speaking, a natural kind. And that is, if a kind is purely conventionally based, so kinds that whose properties are linked together as a result of human convention or um, because of our legal uh, systems or because of our uh, moral uh, beliefs, I think those are not causal and therefore don't really pertain to the causal structure of the world. So let me give you an example. Take a a social category like a permanent resident of a, of a certain country, right? And now suppose we pass a law that permanent residents must not have a, cr- a criminal record or permanent residents uh, must be literate or something like that. Now, those properties then become associated as a result of human convention, not as a result of causal of the causal structure of, of the world. And so if I find that oh, lo and behold, all permanent residents are uh, literate, can read and write. Well, that's not really a discovery about the world, right? That's because we've written it into the law Mm -hmm. uh, that all permanent residents should know how to read and write. So you'd never give a sociologist a grant to go and study that, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) If if they came up with that finding, that that would not be real news. Uh, But now it gets a bit complicated sometimes because once we've, specified those kinds, they can come to have a causal role or they can come to play a, a causal role in, 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 in the you know, sociological structure or in the, I should say, the social, in the social structure. So suppose that now permanent residents, it turns out, all gravitate towards uh, large urban centers. And so it turns out that permanent residents are all are predominantly urban dwellers. Now, that's, I think, uh, a real causal uh, connection between the property or the, the kind of permanent resident and being a, an urban dweller. And so I think sometimes it gets complicated because conventional kinds then go on to have a kind of causal dimension, uh, and it becomes complicated to, to separate out their causal and their conventional uh, dimensions. But um, if they are purely conventional, it seems to me then um, there's no real reason to think of them as natural kinds because they don't pertain to the causal structure of the world. And in this case, it's the social world um, that sociologists and social scientists study. Well, let me, let me um, then ask a, a question about... Um you know this. I maybe maybe this has been sort of behind my my uh, the idea and the realism issue that was sort mm-hmm. of uh, in the back of my mind as I read the book. Um, so you you identify the you know you you call it various times natural kinds sort of epistemic kinds and you you 
say that, you know, these are the categories, you know, from the sciences uh, that are projectable and they, you know, let us, uh, they, they support good inductive generalizations, they generate new predictions, um, they are fertile in terms of explanation and so forth, right? And these are all various, you know, epistemic virtues associated with, with uh, good and productive sciences. Um, but then there's this causal structure. Um, and I'm just wondering um, if what's sort of doing the work to get you from this, the epistemic categories to the kinds is that the, the kinds are really, is it the case that the natural kinds really are these that are, you know, that they, those kinds are determined by real causal structures? And the epistemic issue is really how we identify them, but that's not what the natural kinds are. Do you, do you see my... So I'm sort of wondering yeah. to what extent um, your epistemic view is in fact, you know, really just, a, or I shouldn't say just, but I mean just a causal structure view of some sort. Natural kinds are those that... Uh, are, you know, nodes in causal networks. Um, and this is how we find them out. And, you know, and, and, and that's the complete story. Yeah. Well, I, I guess um, I go from epistemology to metaphysics. So it seems to me that um, what science is trying to discern, discern is the causal structure of the world. And so whichever categories have these uh, kinds of epistemic virtues uh, that they figure in good explanations and are good for inductions and so on are the ones that are going to correspond to important features of the causal structure of the world. Um, as, um, as you said, nodes in, in the causal networks. And, and I know that this is, there's a kind of trend in contemporary philosophy to say, don't mix your epistemology with your metaphysics. And if you're making any inferences from uh, epistemology to metaphysics, then you're kind of verificationist. And this is um, a real philosophical faux pas. And um, I think that's a very misleading way of looking at things because it seems to me the alternative to that is just doing metaphysics in a kind of a priori fashion and saying that, well, we have these strong intuitions about how the world has to be, and that's our best guide to the structure of the universe. And I just think that that approach is, is not tenable any longer. I, I am not just, I'm not willing to accept that we've got some kind of intuitive knack for understanding what, what the universe is like. And instead, it seems to me that what we need to go on are um, our epistemic practices and what we can discover. And what we can discover about the world is its causal joints. And so it, it seems to me there's nothing illegitimate in going from our best epistemic practices to inferring something about the uh, causal structure of the world. Now, I mean, I don't attempt a full-blown defense of, of scientific realism, and I think there are some good defenses out there that I've um, relied upon to, to a large extent. Uh, but um, 
but it seems to me that um, that that's uh, really the direction of the inference that, that from um, our from these kinds of from from categories that satisfy certain epistemic virtues, two kinds that are part of the causal structure of the world. Okay, fair, fair enough. Um, uh, let me ask then about you. You had mentioned before the uh, uh, the looping effect, right? The interactive uh, mm-hmm. effect, and, and you you went into it a little bit, but I um, I just wanted to ask sort of directly about this issue of you know mind dependence, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which is often touted as one of the markers of a category that uh, that can't be natural, right? And and so you know, in effect, this idea of being mind independent or mind dependent has been uh, kind of a proxy in some contexts for a natural versus, you know, socially constructed or conventional kind distinction. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't think that mind in, mind dependence or independence for that matter is, is a, um, is a, is a worthwhile criterion for making the distinctions that, that, that you want to draw. Um, so maybe you could just say something about, uh, you know, sort of problematic kinds of mind dependence, and then the the non problematic kinds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I mean that this was a bit of a revelation. I think for me, while while I was writing the book, I I just came to the realization that um, this criterion of mind independence, which has become so common in any uh, discussion of realism, and it's um, present in many uh, philosophers' criteria of what uh, is real—that that the real ought to be mind independent—I just think is very misleading because um, it, you know it's not as though the mind is not part of reality, and it's not as though that things that might be dependent on the mind in various ways are therefore not real. I mean, uh, you know, I think many philosophers are committed to the reality of minds and the reality of things that ensue from those minds. And so uh, to insert that as as a criterion, mind independence as a criterion uh, for uh, something being real, I think is really um, misses the point. It's a bit of a red herring. And I understand where it's coming from. And I think it's coming from this idea to say, well, what we want is to know what the universe would be like completely without our presence in it or something like that. Mm. And um, I understand that impulse, but um, it's not that that's that what we want is, I mean, because we are part of the universe and we influence the universe in certain ways and we create real effects. And so I guess what we want is uh, something more like the structure of the universe, uh, including minds and and their effects. And so uh, I think that that, that, uh, thinking of mind independence as being criterial uh, for realism is really not the way to go. So, um, something can be real while also being dependent in various ways on human minds. I mean, I mentioned one way in which a certain kind of mind dependence does undermine uh, something's being real and um, something's being purely a matter of convention or pertaining to 
um, certain legal uh, distinctions that we make or certain legal associations or moral associations that those don't pertain to the to the causal uh, structure uh, of the world. And so there are types of mind dependence that are problematic. But I think that the um, that what we should be concerned with is trying to identify those types of mind dependence that undermine something's uh, being, you know, part of the real causal structure of, of the world. Um, I, I don't know if that helps or yeah, clarifies yeah. Um, um, mind. Yeah, um, and I guess it sort of leads to my my next question. Is probably the last question because we're we're running towards the end of our time. But um, the issue of normativity, um, and uh, yeah. which you, which you discuss, you know, a lot of the the social categories uh, do include at least some element of of normativity. Um, and this kind of gets back to what hacking's looping, you know, interactive. Yeah. You know, people are categorized in certain ways and then they behave, you know, in, in, uh, in ways that conform to the norm. Um, and so there's this sort of back and forth between the categorization and the behavior. Um, and so, um, how do you, how do you deal with the issue of, of the normativity of kinds and, and, you know, how they do or don't satisfy your criteria for, you know, a, a category should serve the epistemic purposes of science. Um, um, and that seems to, that seems to rule out that, you know, any sort of category that has a normative component um, mm-hmm. won't come out as being natural. But of course, then people will say, well, they all have a normative component or many of them do. Mm-hmm. Um, and this comes out, I think, most, probably most clearly in you know, the more inflammatory contexts of categorization, like, you know, racial categories, right, or or gender categories or, or things like that. Um, yeah. So can you just to, can you say a word about, about the issue of normativity? Yeah, I mean, I think the clearest cases are where we try to change the boundaries of a category purely in response to certain evaluative judgments that we make. Um, and Hacking has a very nice example of this, and he talks about the category of child abuse, uh, which is an important category for sociologists and social psychologists un- understanding <clears throat> why people behave the way they behave and, and so on. But then an effort was made that Hacking describes to um, alter the boundaries of this category of child abuse to include, let's say, um, uh, certain uh, women who were uh, drinking heavily uh, or uh, taking drugs while pregnant. And uh, certain lobbying groups in the United States in particular started saying, well, we should treat this as a form of child abuse because they did not condone this behavior and they wanted to censure it and bring it under the uh, umbrella of, of child abuse uh, would have helped further that cause. Now, if this is done purely because people have certain kinds of evaluative attitudes and they try to change the, the boundaries of a category uh, based on those evaluative attitudes, it seems to me that um, that kind of move can be uncovered and revealed uh, not to correspond to the kinds of causes and effects that we're trying to track, 
and and that very often is the case and does happen. And in fact, it did happen in this case because the sociologists and the social workers who were interested in understanding the causes of child abuse and the effects of child abuse started saying, well, no, no, this, this kind of thing that you're pointing to doesn't fit under the same umbrella. It doesn't have the same causes. It doesn't lead to the same effects. And therefore, to bring it under the category of, of child abuse is purely a kind of evaluative move on your part and is not uh, done in the spirit of understanding how this uh, category uh, interacts or is, is integrated in, into the causal uh, structure of society. And so those are the clearest cases where we try to alter the, the boundaries of a category purely in response to some kind of evaluative um, attitude that, that we take. And it seems to me that those uh, attempts can be ex- exposed quite easily. And I, I should mention here that it's not always uh, certain kinds of problematic attitudes. I mean, there's sometimes when altering the boundaries of the category can can be done in the spirit of actually trying to ameliorate uh, things or improve uh, conditions. I have an example that I uh, discuss briefly where certain psychiatrists say that the category of mild cognitive impairment, uh, MCI, has been very beneficial because it's led people to treat geriatrics with dementia and certain other kinds of disorders much more favorably even though it groups together a disparate collection of disorders and is not does not really uh, describe a valid category from the point of view of psychiatry. Uh, but it's had these beneficial effects. And it seems to me, again, one uh, can uh, detect that as being a kind of illegitimate move if one's really trying to understand uh, certain uh, kinds of psychiatric and, and social causes and effects. Um, but now there are trickier cases where those kinds of evaluative moves themselves have causal repercussions and cause um, certain changes in, in the social world. And um, once that happens, it seems to me that the kind itself has changed. And then we, as investigators into the social world, or sometimes actually the natural world, have to take that into account in order to better understand uh, the ways in which uh, these kinds are interacting. Um, if, if we're, you know, interested in understanding um, causes and effects, and so again, as with the sort of conventional case that I discussed earlier, where as a result of convention you introduce a certain kind, and then it comes to have certain repercussions, um, <clears throat> real causal effects. Uh, so too here, uh, sometimes those kinds of evaluative moves uh, then have causal repercussions and we have to sort of take them into account. But as long as they're purely uh, done uh, for purposes of moral censure or moral um, amelioration or something like that, it seems to me they're not, they, they're not going to correspond to, to uh, real natural kinds. So let me close with, um, so how would, on your view, I mean, if we, let's take the, the category of, of race. Mm-hmm. Um, how does your approach um, change uh, or how should we 
how should we consider the category of race on, you know, given your, within your framework, where, where does that category fall? Yeah. I mean, I, I hesitate always to pronounce on categories that I haven't tried to, to study in any detail, but a lot of philosophers have, and I think there's a lot of important and interesting work on this category. Not, not all of which I've read, but, but I'm familiar with some of it. And I, I, what I find most convincing is um, our treatments that say that race doesn't really correspond to any meaningful biological distinction. So any race categories that we uh, tend to identify don't enter into any uh, real biological causal processes. But it seems to me that race uh, does play a role in explaining and understanding the social world. And uh, it does have uh, certain causal uh, effects and, and it, um, it does enter into uh, important causal processes at the social or sociological level. And so it's not a biological uh, category, but a sociological category and therefore uh, corresponds to some kind of social kind. Uh, and um, it, it's, um, it's a bit complicated because sometimes what happens, what can happen is that if you have a social kind, it might then go on to create or to have biological uh, repercussions. And so I think Philip Kitcher has a treatment according to which he thinks that um, as a result of prejudice uh, and as a result of certain biases against intermarriage, uh, there have been these practices, these social practices that have led to biological differences. Um, now, I... I'm skeptical that these biological differences are really robust enough uh, to enter into biological uh, causal processes. But I think it's possible, and it's an interesting example of a top-down effect where you might have certain social prejudices or barriers that themselves have biological uh, repercussions. Uh, so it seems to me that, that one way to understand race is to understand it primarily as being a social category and as featuring in social causes and effects and not as a biological category. And, and I think part of the confusion when one says, oh, it's a real category uh, and it corresponds to a natural kind, a part of the confusion lies in uh, some people drawing the assumption that, oh, well, then it must correspond to something at the biological level. Right. Um, but, but I think it's uh, quite possible for something to... Uh, be a natural kind in the social domain without being a, a natural kind at the biological domain. Okay, very good. Well, we are we're out of time, so I guess my last uh, my last question is: um, Where do you go from here? Do you have uh, what are you working on now? Uh, following up this book or just separate projects entirely? Well, I have a couple of separate projects. I mean, I'm also interested in philosophy of cognitive science, and I've done uh, some work on uh, some categories in the cognitive sciences, like uh, the category of innateness mm -hmm. and um, concepts and domain specificity, all of which are categories that <laughs> feature prominently in contemporary cognitive science. And I'm interested in understanding whether they're valid and whether they correspond to natural kinds. So I'm interested in sort of those micro 
projects, I guess. But I guess I would like to be able to explore more the issue of social kinds. And I think there's much more um, work to be done on uh, understanding what social kinds are and, um, you know, how they interact with, say, biological and other kinds. Uh, and um, I hope to be able to pursue that uh, to some extent also in the future. Well, that's great. Um, well, thank you very much for your time. Um, and it's been great talking with you about your book. Well, thank you very much. I mean, it's a real privilege to be able to discuss these matters. And I'm, I'm really grateful to you for having given the book such a close reading and, and uh, thought, you know, thought uh, up some, some really great questions i hope my answers have, have done your questions justice sure no it was a it was a great read okay, but, excellent. Uh, okay thank you you've been listening to an interview with muhammad ali khalidi professor of philosophy at york university about his new book natural categories and human kinds which is just out from cambridge university press i'm carrie figdor this is new books in philosophy i hope you enjoyed the podcast and thank you for listening